Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 29. Got a great interview coming at you after this intro, of course. It's our first conversation with a mastering engineer, so lots of fun stuff in there. For the intro this week, I wanted to get into an idea that has definitely been touched on in various intros and interviews, but hasn't really been given the spotlight yet. I want to talk about the dangers of the comfort zone. People want to be safe and comfortable. It's a basic survival instinct. To a certain extent, I think society actually paints the picture of the comfort zone as being the end goal. You know, the house with a yard, steady job, 1.7 children, etc., etc. Unfortunately, that comfortable life might not bring you the ultimate happiness and success that you have the potential for. Now, I'm not knocking the comfort zone. I think there are times and places for it. There are actually probably aspects of your life that are best suited to be in the comfort zone. Say, if you're supporting a family and you've had a stable job for a decade that you enjoy, keyword, enjoy, but always wanted to write a book, staying in the comfort zone of your job is probably a good move, but stepping outside your comfort zone and starting a blog of short stories to work towards your dream of writing a book is probably also a good move. So you have to understand that when you're comfortable, your brain's survival instinct will be fulfilled and you'll be satisfied and it'll be great. But you'll be less likely to push for change and growth. Spending a long time in the comfort zone is likely not going to bring you total happiness. Although it could, but think of all the movies with a plot that involve a character stuck in a job they've done for their whole life, and now they're searching for happiness and fulfillment. See, our society's funny that way. It encourages you to find the comfort zone, and then kind of like drops these little hints that maybe it's not what's best for you. Because in the end, it comes down to this. People get bored. They want to be challenged. There is actually a sweet spot for challenge or stress that inspires people to thrive and grow. There's also a lower end of that where you become unmotivated and uninterested in things. And on the flip side, a higher end where your fear actually takes over and prevents you from moving forward. That sweet spot of stress is probably better referred to as eustress, which is a moderate amount of stress that is actually beneficial to the person. You want to be challenged, and therefore you are excited and energized by that eustress. So the point of all that rambling is that in some part of your life, you should be actively pushing yourself into a state of growth. And the area of your life that you want to push into growth is going to be different for each person. It's also going to be different at different times in your life. But what you can't do is stop growing. You can't settle for the comfort zone. You can stop off in the comfort zone, check it out, see what's going on. But then you have to get back on the road to pushing yourself in something. Let's get a nerdy reference in here that might sum up the true point of this whole rant. 
The psychologist Carol Dweck has done a lot of research on mindsets, and she's laid out two different belief systems about abilities and skills. There's the fixed mindset, which is basically the idea that your abilities are fixed and unchangeable, that you will only be as good at something as has been predetermined by the universe. This is the antithesis of this podcast. It's the progression's arch nemesis. If you listen to last week's episode, you'd identify this as the ultimate limiting belief. Now, the second mindset that Carol identified is the growth mindset. This is the good stuff. A growth mindset is defined by the belief that your skills and abilities can be developed and improved through practice and hard work. So to take this back to the comfort zone, you can't let your comfort zone breed a fixed mindset. You have to maintain a growth mindset at all times. And if you have to recharge for a minute in the comfort zone, that's cool. But then eventually get back on the growth train and push yourself in some way. Now, I know we haven't really tied this one into music, and this is a music podcast, so I claim. So I'll give you one really quick. This is one that I think many new artists can relate to. Making music is probably your comfort zone. And releasing music, that is your growth zone. You can't make music and never release it. So there's our music tie-in for the day. Before we go, I wanted to leave you with a quote that popped up while I was doing research for this rant. It doesn't seem to be attributed to anyone in particular, so I'm sorry if it's yours and you hear this. Also hit me up if it's yours and you hear this. So here it is. Life is hard for two reasons. Because you're leaving your comfort zone or because you're staying in it. Today's guest, Ian Sefcik, has worn many hats in the music industry. Not only is he a Grammy-nominated mastering engineer, but he also designed and hand-builds one of the most sought-after compressors in the studio world, under the unusual company name Magic Death Eye. Early in life, he dropped out of college to pursue a career in music and found himself signed to a major label with his band Creeper Lagoon. Spin Magazine named them Best New Artist of 1998. So from building tube guitar amps in high school to working as a staff technician for Capitol Studios and learning the art of cutting vinyl, he's covered a lot of ground. So welcome to the show, Ian Sefcik. Dude, how are you? Doing good, man. Excited. Been a long time. Yeah, since uh, the old days at Capitol. <laughs> That's right. I think last time I saw you, you were loading your speakers out of my studio. Yeah, I think so. That was like the beginning of the pandemic when it was uh, nobody knew what was going on yet. Yep, and uh, I don't know if you want to get to this now, but Capital Mastering is no more. It recently shut down, and they had to lay off all the mastering engineers, so I'm a free agent now. <laughs> <laughs> you're all set up, though. You're, you're partying already, right? Yes, definitely. Actually, I kind of fell into a new... Well, I couldn't cut, obviously. I don't know what they're doing with the lathes. I was sad about that, but since the pandemic started, I'd set up my own mastering suite in my guest house. And I don't know, I'm a tech tweaker, so I have fun <laughs> doing that stuff. And uh, I dumped in a lot of money and got some bass traps and actually got a new set of really cool speakers. They're actually vintage pro studio towers, which are pretty rare, but Oh, nice. They use ATC drivers, and um, I'm really happy with them and getting used to them right now. And yeah, so since the pandemic started, we were sent home, and we were doing label work and mastering at home. All the mastering guys had their own setups. So I had already started um, setting that that whole thing up. And now I'm going full bore at home, and I just secured a new job doing some cutting and I'm really excited about that. So things are going great, and I'm feeling 
pretty amazing about my path forward, especially with uh, Magic Death Eye expanding. So that's yeah, it's awesome. all good. That's cool. So it's my understanding you uh, you obviously you build amazing gear, but you're mastering. Are you building all your own gear? I think I feel like you are. Right? Did you build your whole rig? Yeah, right now my analog chain is all Magic Death Eye custom stuff. And the bad thing about being able to build your own gear is I don't get excited about other gear anymore, which I used to. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's cool, but I guess I'll just build something like that or something. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's really fun. And, and yeah, it's all kind of custom and I can shape it to how I want if I want, you know, something that has harmonics or distortion, I can do that. If I want a different type of compression, I can do that. Yeah, it's fun and exciting. And it, it's a cool blend of being able to be creative musically and also be creative with the electronics and, you know, customize the sound in every project I do. Not every project, but, you know, it's a cool learning experience. Just build a compressor for every record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're the first person I've had on the show that does a lot of vinyl cutting. Would you mind running through that for our audience? Like, uh, why is mastering for, well, no one uses a CD anymore, but mastering for Spotify different than vinyl? Mostly it's because of the limitations of the medium. So maybe I'll just start real quick about how I got started cutting being a tech at Capitol, I learned, I used to work on the lathe that Ron McMaster cut on. And he mentioned one day that there was a lathe in storage. And I was like, wow, okay. So I harangued the staff at the time to let me take it out of storage. And they gave me this small closet to work in. And I restored the whole thing. We had the manuals and I recapped the whole lathe and uh, recalibrated it and started cutting and right around that time this was maybe 6 years ago or something and vinyl had started its resurgence and Ron started getting bunched up with his jobs and I started taking the overflow and started making money so it all kind of went from there I had to learn really quick because the work really started coming in and just knowing producers and different mixers in the industry from being a tech and working at Capitol, some really cool producers started using me, Rich Costi, Blake Mills, because they could come in and sit with me and really have control while I was kind of learning. They could tell me what they wanted, and that helped me figure out what people wanted to hear from vinyl. And right off the bat, I did like 50 Blue Note releases. That was... uh that was scary <laughs> because <laughs> Bernie Grumman was doing um, half. There was going to be 100 Blue Note reissues. Bernie Grumman was doing half. And for some reason, Don was liked what I did on a test cut. So he was like, you do the other half. And uh, I made some mistakes, but I'm not going to mention them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but back to your original question, mastering for vinyl is because there's certain things that a lathe can't do. I had one of the best lathes, it was one of the best cutter heads, so I was able to put more level and more frequency range on than a lot of older lathes, so that was good. But when you're mastering for vinyl, you're really trying to control the super high and super low frequencies because um, a sub frequency can basically stop your cutting in mid-cut 
it'll pop what's called a breaker and pull the head up. And that can happen with super high end as well. So there's a lot of figuring out without blowing up the lathe where to put those filters. And yes, there is some headroom things that you may want to do. Different people, different mixers want different things. Sometimes I just cut from the original loud masters that have already been mastered, and that's fine. I just have to turn down, you know, match the volume with what the lathe can handle. And sometimes mixers like Rich Costi would give me unmastered mixes and say, hey, you know, make these sound good for vinyl. And I would definitely limit them less, and I could get a better sound that way on the vinyl. So you can do it either way. It's mainly uh, bending to the will of the medium. That makes it sound like hip-hop would be probably one of the hardest things to do, or, or, or dance records, some of that really low-end. No, it more depends on the length of the material on a side. If you have, that's why dance records would have 12 inch singles. Because if you have a lot of time, you can widen the groove and then you can fit more music. Let me see, how, how, how can I say this? Um, the grooves stack up. And if there's thin grooves, you can't have as much bass. And, but you can fit more grooves on the vinyl. Right. If you widen the grooves, you you know, the time runs out quicker, but you can fit more bass on. So it's always a balance of if you have like, say, a 20-minute side, you may have to cut a little bass to make those grooves thinner to fit it all on. You can also fit it all on by lowering the volume and the grooves will wiggle less. Then again, you can stack, pack the grooves together better and get the time on. But then that means that the natural surface noise of the vinyl, which happens with the plating process and everything it has to go to through to be a vinyl, that noise is kind of at a set level. And making the music quieter to fit, that noise becomes more apparent and you get a noisy record. So it's a balance of all those things, but you can get plenty of bass. And I've done lots of hip hop records that have been super bassy and loud. They just have to have a shorter time. And sometimes I'll tell the label like, hey, can you split this up into four sides instead of two sides? And sometimes they do. Sometimes it's not in the budget. It just depends on the artist. But yeah, no, you, dance records can have huge bass. It's not really a problem. It's just about the time and how fat you can make the grooves. Ah, okay. Awesome. See, even I'm learning something now. Yeah, hey, <laughs> this is all about. That's right. So <laughs> you've done a bunch of stuff. I wanted to talk about, because something that we, we really hammer on in this show is like when people decide to make like a big change and you've obviously made a bunch of changes what was the trigger for you to want to do vinyl did you feel like you saw the change coming or you just wanted to mix it up like well why'd you change to mastering? i've always been curious and you know when i was in high school i you know i was also into mechanics and i restored a couple motorcycles and you know i had go-karts so i was always kind of mechanical but I also liked electronics, and hearing that there was a lathe which kind of combines those two things in storage really piqued my interest. And um, to be honest, I was getting bored of just fixing gear for the studios as a tech. I wanted something to do something more. I had fixed a thousand 1176s, and <laughs> I was just kind of tired <laughs> of. Um, yeah, so just 
restoring that lathe for fun and curiosity kind of just naturally led into cutting. And I guess I was just lucky. That's the thing in the industry, hard work is important, but luck also, I think, has a lot to do with it. You know, just finding yourself at the right place at the right time. But you're never going to get there if you don't work to put yourself in those positions. Yeah. And picking up skills along the way furthers the path, you know. So, and that's another thing I want to talk to you about or your listeners, um, being able to understand just the basics of electronics really can open up a lot of doors in any, you know, songwriting, mixing, mastering, anything you want to do in the music industry, knowing a bit of how audio electronics works really helps with all those other things. It's a good backup thing. I mean, I started out as a musician, but I ended up supporting a family with teching and electronics. And it was a cool change for me because, you know, as you get older, maybe touring and making records and dealing with people isn't as uh, fun as it is in your mid-20s or whatever, (laughs) you know, so there you go. Well, you know, it is interesting because the science behind, you know, electronics and analog audio really translates into the computer visually. And I don't think a lot of people realize like terms like phase. And when you're looking at something, what you're actually looking at, you're looking at these sound waves that, you know, are essentially electrical pulses at some point in their life, right? Yeah, I mean... I really like plugins. I mean, I master digitally a lot, and plugins are amazingly creative. And I think a lot of new mixers and producers really don't understand anything about impedance and how different analog gear hooks up and works together, which is fine. I mean, that's that's a cool thing, too, because sometimes that knowing the way things work outside of the computer can be a little limiting creatively to what's going on in the computer. Sometimes people just throw things on a track and it, it comes up sounding really cool and, and new. I like that too, but dealing with audio when it turns into voltage outside of the computer, if you're going to come outside of the computer, there's a whole other world, of course, of creativity that's there. And understanding mainly about impedance and how different units hook up to different other units is very important in shaping sound. Say uh, a microphone and a mic pre, sometimes just combining different mics with different mic pre's can give you a totally different vocal sound. You know, some people go, oh, this is the chain. You get a, you know, a 250 into a 1073 into a tube tech and that's your sound. And it's like, that's kind of limiting. It's cool to be able to go, well, maybe I might get this really weird Aphex mic pre or, or even something nobody's ever heard of and try that mic on that mic pre because the input of the mic pre has a certain loading to the mic and it can change the sound of the mic and give you a totally different sound. And as long as you don't look at it as good and bad and brand is good and bad, you can come up with some really creative sounds and understanding all that stuff outside of the computer really adds to plugins and the creativity you can do within the computer. Yeah, that's so well put. Actually, that, that's really great. And something else, you know, that we never we never get too nerdy on the show, but, I mean, we're going to go there right now. You <laughs> get know, when, nerdy, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, 
the like thinking about how microphones interact with your source too and like the the speed of the capsule and the way that everything there's so many things outside the computer that affect what something sounds like yeah and i think that's one of the problems with social media and forums a lot of people read things on forums and go okay this must be good and they stick with it and they're stuck with one sound and it could be good but just being able to to be free enough to experiment and not go with the flow reading chains and and techniques on forums is a good starting point but i would really suggest buying cheap mics or something you can afford just having a variety of things to switch around because you may come on that special sound that nobody else has that really fits with a certain vocal and not to limit yourself to what everybody else is doing totally yeah what's well, it yeah inspires creativity and really you know goes back to the way that you hand build the majority of your gear it's like your sound is your sound because of that if you're enjoying this episode then please consider pulling your phone out tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it obviously it would be huge for me but it could be even more game changing for that person you just never know what can inspire or help someone else out i want to take a second to tell you about secret sonics a podcast by ben wallach and carl bonner secret sonics is one of my favorite shows and it's now double amazing with the addition of carl bonner as a co-host Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. All right, so let, let's jump off a jump off a nerd fest here for a minute. I want to talk about Magic Death Eye because I think what you're doing with that company, I think, can parallel a lot of other people's journeys, whether it's like putting out your record or your sample pack. It's like you had an idea. And I remember, I mean, years ago when we were all demoing the different boxes at, at Capitol. And now you're here with an amazing box that everybody wants to get their hands on. So what's the story? Yeah, there was a, it was a really organic development with that stuff because being a tech at Capitol, I would work on Fairchilds and fix different tube compressors and so I learned a lot about what makes them tick and what changes the sound and the compression qualities. And the big breakthrough was when John Bryan and Greg Kohler had a residency at Capitol. They were there for a year or two, and they would work late night, and I would have a shift late night. And we became friends, and they're just amazingly talented people and I'd come into the Studio B, and they just had their piles of gear, just incredible amount of exotic gear there that I was able to listen to. And they would say, hey, I really love the sound of this piece. Can you make this other piece sound similar to that? And I'd take it to the tech shop, and I'd you know change out transformers or caps or whatever and play around with it and bring it back. And then they'd listen and... They'd say, oh, you know, it's a little peaky here or, you know, there's not enough low end. And I'd take it back. And it was really fun because I was able to hear some talented people with really good ears push me in directions. And I learned what in circuits made those cool sounds. And so I started doing a lot of custom gear for the different producers that came in. And at one point I was just like, I better put a name on this, you know, and and that's kind of how Magic Death Eye was born. It was it was a really organic, cool process. It came from not, hey, I want to make this compressor and make some money. 
it came from, oh, there's all these different tube compressors and they all kind of sound the same because they use, all use Jensen transformers. And I want to make something special that has these qualities that, you know, these different mixers look for or love in their vintage gear. But I want to make something a little bit more solid and dependable. So yeah, that's how it came about. And I continue to learn and grow and I'm not afraid to change. There's been different versions of my compressors. And up until now, I really have great relationships with all of my clients. Uh, a lot of them were friends already. And I become, you know, we have many emails about different stuff and it's a really cool experience. I'm now expanding Magic Death Eye to be able to reach more people. I often feel bad because... You know, people say, hey, when, is your when are you building your next compressor? I want it. And I, I just can't build them fast enough. I have so many things going on. So I am documenting the compressors to have them be manufactured in the exact same way that I build them. Amazing. Which I had to hire a whole different engineering company to be able to do it exactly right. But that's an exciting move. And I'm going to stick with my mono and stereo compressor for now because I really want to get those right and get those out to more people. But then, you know, that's where plugins come in. I hooked up with a really cool guy from the plugin company DDMF. His name's Christian, and he's a brilliant programmer and a physicist. And uh, years ago, we, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, he was modeling, like, you know, cancer cells or something like Some stuff I don't even understand. And he got into audio because it was just a love of his, and he started coding plugins. So he kind of learned from the bottom up too. And I really liked that about him. And we were able to work closely developing the sound for the plugins. And he was kind of learning along the way. And I would actually put the plugins on my audio precision here, which I test my analog gear with, and look at the distortion and curves and be like, hey, man, can you do this or that? And I don't think people do it that way, but <laughs> it worked out really good because I think they sound great and a lot of people like them. They do sound so, really good. They're yeah, super, super close. Thank you. Yeah. that's I'm very proud of them. And, uh, and we continue to work together and we have some cool things coming up. But yeah, I wanted to have time to be more creative and develop more stuff. So that's why I'm trying to have my original products manufactured. But it's, it's definitely a cool, long journey that that I'm taking. Is there a level of fear? Like you're, you're letting your, your baby go, somebody else is gonna build it? No, because the, the engineering company is really cool. They're in San Diego and they build biomedical stuff, blood testers and, you know, just really intensely complex and technical devices for different companies. And the owner of the company is this really cool guy and he's getting into audio. He's really oh, cool. wanting to go do more audio stuff because the whole firm has a lot of fun doing it. So he's really excited about it. And he's like, man, we're going to make these finishes perfect. We're going to have these transformers wound right to your spec. And I'm like, great, man, that's exactly what I want. So we have a really good relationship. And it's a personal relationship too, which I like to have in all my business dealings. I think one of the most important parts of anything in music or in manufacturing or in product, you know, is having trusting people that you work with and making sure that everybody's kind of in a simplistic way, everybody's having fun. <laughs> yeah. If, if somebody's not having fun and something seems like a drag, 
I'm going to get another person. You know, it's like I'm not going to force anybody to work on something they don't want to work on. And if you go with that, then even if it fails, you know, you had a good time doing it and it wasn't a waste of time. It was a positive experience. Maybe it didn't work out, but you move on feeling good about learning what you learned. Yeah. Well, it's like making a record. It's, you know, you go in the studio for a month. I mean, you're friends with those people, you know, most likely forever, usually. Uh, whether the record is huge or small or it's a major label or an indie label, it's, yeah, having fun, especially in music or really anything, has got to be your first priority because nobody does good work. Oh, yeah. I would talk to you guys at Capitol and, you know, I could tell whether the project was cool or not just by the attitude of everybody in there. And it makes a difference, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's inspired to do their best work when they're having a good time. That's, I think, the joy about, you know, being on your own, you know, now you're a freelancer. It's, you do the projects that you want to do with the people you love working with, and it's every, everything is great, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, not to be too utopian about the whole thing. It's not that easy. I mean, when you first start out, you do have to deal with a lot of crap you don't like. I started mastering when I was teching, and I was mastering at home. And um, I would take anything for any amount of money and just the most crappiest projects mixed by, you know, people in their bathroom, not even bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I learned, you know, real quick, all the kind of deep things about mastering that you may not learn if you just start mastering at a high level or walk into it where you're getting mixes that are almost, you know, there in the first place. I had to try to shape things to sound something like, you know, a professional recording. And that, there's where I learned techniques with multiband compressors and mid-side. And, you know, because you were forced to do that. And so, but the goal is, is, you know, when you're younger, when you're starting out, you can take more of that and take as much as you can. And as you get older, old like me, you start... <laughs> letting those types of jobs go because time is a wasting if you get my meaning <laughs> you know it's like i don't want to do things that aren't fun anymore because i don't have that much time left <laughs> you know? yeah uh so yes you're gonna have to deal with crappy stuff to begin with um but you'll learn in the same way but you and, are learning uh, too you know it's like you're you're out there trying to figure out what every compressor does and you know you people are and you're working with people that are learning how to make a record. You know, you're generally working with people that are also learning. And then eventually you find what you enjoy. You find the types of music you like to work on. And that's when you kind of shift out of that. But everybody does does everything in the beginning because you, you have to. It's the only way to figure out what you're doing. Yeah. And I think another important thing, whether you're a musician or um, a mixer or you're trying to start producing stuff is, and I know people hate hearing this, but having another job, you know, it's like, it's so freeing to have an income that allows you to let go of, of projects that are dragging you down or, or hard or just you're not into it, you know, and you can afford to take more chances and be creative in the music part of your life. I mean, I have experience with this from being in a band and being signed, and everybody knows, like, at first, before you're famous, even though you're signed, you're not making a lot of money. And I was desperate to make hits. 
you know, because I wanted to be famous and I felt my whole life was based on my music career. And when all that went to shit and I kind of started my life over and I had to get a job because I had a daughter and I had to raise a family in, in Pivot, I did some of the most creative music making while I had other jobs that I'd ever done in my life because I was free to just mess around and be creative and not care. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have to go all the way in that direction, but having a second job or a second interest and, and, and also you don't have to identify yourself as like, I'm an artist only, you know, I was always able to be like, well, you know, I'm kind of a tinkerer and electronics guy and I make this other stuff and I'm an artist. So if anybody said you suck at either one, I could just be like, well, I'm the other, <laughs> you know, and that's pretty liberating too. So uh, word of advice is, is try to diversify your, your careers or your, your income. Oh, definitely now. Yeah. The, the era of studio that was once is, is no more. I mean, now everybody kind of has to understand the business under, you know, know some music, know some engineering, know some production ideas. Like if you're trying to make it in the music industry now, you better, you better have a lot of hats on. Oh yeah. It's a completely different world, but you know, it's, it's good and bad in that sense. It's, it's good because for a lot less money, you can be a lot more creative and bad because there's a lot more noise out there. You know, it's like the really good stuff is harder to find. Yeah. But I don't think there's less good stuff than there ever was. It's just buried now um, under all the crap. And I think one of the reasons that oh, there's a lot of crap out there is because of, you know, I mean, this goes deep into social media and this whole shift of, of how people advertise themselves and the motivations for writing and creating music uh, have changed drastically from, you know, whatever, the 60s, 70s, even the 80s. And um, yeah, it, it's it's a problem, but it also allows more people to get into it and explore music and creativity. So good and bad. Yeah. I was going to ask, I had an interesting thought. Do you think that the way the music business, because you've done a bunch of things, the way the music industry is now where you kind of have to do everything, is there like maybe a little bit of a death of expertise coming in the next decade where everybody's do doing everything 80%. You know, like in the 80s, like you had guys that were just the only person you'd go to for this and that's what they did and they made their whole careers doing these mixes or doing these records or playing. And now Definitely. everybody's doing everything. It feel like there could be a weird place in a, in a, a decade or so where people, there are no, there are no uh, experts. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what plugins allow you not to know how to calibrate a tape machine. You know, digital recording has changed that tremendously. And it's also like that with new products. Like I always say microphones, if you want to invest in a really nice microphone, I always say buy a Neumann, you know, buy a vintage AKG or, you know, a, a vintage Sony mic. Or, you know, I mean, when they make mics in in the 50s or 60s or, you know, even the 40s, they had real technicians and real scientists that developed those mics and every part, the capsule, the transformer, the electronics, the tube, whatever, they were all 
put together to achieve the you know ultimate fidelity. And these days, there's a hundred million mic manufacturers, and they're just throwing together parts and listening and go, yeah, that's great, and uh, this is a great product, and it looks cool. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's fun, but you can tell. Say, for instance, when you know when Al Schmidt records at Capitol, and you see just an army of 67s up on the strings and and you understand like that sound that he's getting he does a lot of uh mix with the masters or whatever and and i know he tells people this he's he's like it's the placement it's the quality of the mics and using vintage mics gives that that just that air and and the fidelity that if you just have a bunch of oddball new boutique microphones you're not going to get uh, I mean, it's possible, but yeah, that that not having specialists and technicians and real engineers um, build stuff or know what they're doing can be detrimental to the music. But at the same time, here's the good part is, again, you can be more creative with plugins and, and digital media and experiment and have happy accidents and not worry about any of that stuff. Again, it's the song. If the song's great, it's going to be great, and people are going to love it. So it's hard to say what's good and bad. I don't like to say, oh, back in the old days. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's definitely amazing things, but time is going on. Technology is progressing, and uh, I think we'll eventually all evolve and adapt to whatever happens. Yeah, no, amazing. Ian makes himself out to sound very old, but he, he's not as old as a, as he's advertising here. Everybody should know that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I would, something I, I thought was interesting is, you know, you said you were doing all that critical listening with, uh, with John Bryan and the crew when you were building your compressors. Do you have any, because I think this is something that I think a lot of people never really get into, learning to listen. Do you have any tips for learning how to listen to music, both, from from a technical sense, it's it's a weird question, but I think you know what I'm asking, right? No, I know what you mean, and 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 yes, this is very important. Before learning to listen, you need to have a great acoustic space and speakers. And I hate that this is the 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 problem with being able to buy cheap stuff and just start creating music and headphones. That's great, and that's great for songwriting and production, but for mastering. And really intensively listening to things, you have to start at some baseline. And just having a couple KRKs in, you know, a 10 by 10 room is not going to allow you to hear everything. You can't critical listen. You're hearing too many of some frequencies or absolutely no frequencies that are being canceled. And you can't make educated decisions and use your own talent or use your taste because you can't hear everything. So mm -hmm. the beginning of critical listening is getting a setup where you can listen as best as you possibly can. And unfortunately, that often costs money. And even if you're in a small room, I would implore everybody to invest in bass trapping, number one, uh, acoustic panels just for controlling reflections are pretty cheap. There's tons of stuff out there that you can find out about this stuff. But to really acoustically, the best you can treat your rooms and get the best possible speakers 
you can for the money you have. Then you can start to critical listen. And there's really no secret about critical listening. It's just listening as much as you can to as many different types of styles of music that you can. I often just have sessions where I'll have a new setup for my speaker, or I'll try a new amp, and I'll just sit there with Spotify and just go through different genres and different playlists and just listen. And I'm, I am paying attention, but at the same time, my subconscious is making calculations and figuring out what's going on and then making uh, a critical decision isn't so hard. You kind of naturally do it, like riding a bike. You have to learn to ride the bike, and then your body just does it. So when I get used to a system, I pull up the the songs I'm going to master, and pretty much instantly, I hear what's wrong with it. And uh, that's if I know what's going on and I'm used to the system. If I don't, I have no idea what's going on. So it's very important to get to know your equipment and your room and your speakers and just listen a lot. And then when something comes in, you can make a quick decision. Your body will naturally do it. And then you use your taste and make it how you want it. And the tools are there. And that's pretty much the process. There's, it's not secret. It just takes time and a lot of listening and, and a good setup. That's great. That was really well put. Yeah, the, the idea that you can't use your talent and your taste if you can't trust your room is, is, a, is a cool thought. Yeah, I, I struggled for years in a practice space with NS10s. I'm like, I can't get a mix to sound good for the life of me. And these are NS10s. It's what everybody uses. And I had like a 50-watt amp, and I had the speakers in the corners. And of course I couldn't because I couldn't hear anything. It just sounded like ass, and uh, <laughs> I could never learn. So it's very important if you're beginning to try to you know, there's some really uh, cool equipment out there you can get for cheap. There's test mics that you can get for under $100 that are USB mics that are omnidirectional and free software that you can easily do a frequency sweep of your room. You put the mic in your listening position. It's not perfect, but it gives you a great idea about, you know, what frequencies are canceling, where the dips are. And, you know, literally for under a hundred bucks, you can have a semi-pro uh, test system to shoot your room. And uh, everybody should look into that because it's it's really eye-opening when you see that curve on the software and go, oh my God, there's it's 20 dB down at 250 hertz. No wonder my mixes sound like crap, you know? Are there uh, specific companies that come to mind? I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for people. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I'll... Grab my, email to me. Yeah. Take a look so at we'll, yeah, email. we'll put that in there for people to find. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to uh, before we go. I wanted to go back to Creeper Lagoon a little bit, and you know, making that decision to drop out of college, and then somehow ending up signed, and then having it all turn around and not being in a band anymore. What was that that little part of your journey like? Um, it's a really long story, and we don't have enough time. But okay, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Uh, I wanted to get out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and a buddy of mine had moved to San Francisco, and actually a couple of buddies of mine that I would make music with in Cincinnati, and I followed him out there doing four-track demos the whole time and being in different bands, and eventually it just all kind of coalesced around uh, a friend of mine, and he actually put out a single on an indie label back when single vinyls were a thing, and um, 
And A&R from, at the time, Geffen heard it, wrote him a letter, and I went over to his house, and he was like, look at this. And it had the DGC letterhead on it. And it said, hey, man, I'm really interested in your project. And we just both went nuts. And I was like, I'm joining the band. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, okay, because it was just his little solo thing. He was actually in different bands, too. So it turned out that I was really good at singing, and you know we combined our songs, and I became the lead singer, and we would collaborate. And uh, the A&R guy's name was Luke Wood, and he came and saw us play at a couple shows, and it basically all just rocketed out from there. We worked really hard. We did a lot of tours under an indie label that actually we were assigned to first. It was this kind of uh, it's what um, major labels were doing at that time. They were signing bands to an indie label first so they'd get quote-unquote street cred, and then they'd do a record or two there, and then they'd bring them onto the major labels. And so we yeah, were doing sneaky. that. It was, I mean, it made sense, yeah. and they put us on the road for basically a year or two straight uh, for the first record, And it pretty much drove us all crazy. And by the time the major label record came out, we were rock stars before we were even rock stars. (laughs) We we were doing all the terrible things before we were famous. And uh, it was really unhealthy and it just imploded. And we were actually on tour in London and... We are playing a, a gig in London, and we played Scotland. And um, after those shows, or in the middle of the tour, I basically said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. And the record had just, the major label release had just come out a couple weeks earlier. And I just took a plane home and quit the band. And that was that. I was going to die, basically. So I figured not dying was better than being in a band. <laughs> True. So the band never did anything and the record kind of went nowhere, but I did get to work with a lot of amazing producers and engineers along the way, you know, Greg Wells, uh Mark Trombino, um Jerry Harrison, and I got to work in in a lot of different studios in California, which was great. And it was a great experience overall. I'm glad I did it, but uh, it was just too unhealthy for me. And I had to pivot, so I did. <laughs> when you hit that point where you, you decided you needed to make that change, obviously your goal when you were a kid was to to be a rock star, and then, and then you'd had that moment, you'd had your label deal. Like, when you decided what to sh- shift into, like, what what were your thoughts at that point? Like, I'm, well, I'm going to still honestly, do music, or I'm, I'm just going to get a job for a minute and recharge? Yeah, no, honestly, I, I, I wanted to continue with music at the time. You know, I just thought I needed to get in a different situation, something more healthy or uh, less destructive. Right. And I did have a couple bands. I started another band called On the Speakers, and we actually got a deal with Motown, oddly enough. And uh, we toured with, you know, Built to Spill and... Um, uh, French kicks and we had a we had a really great time with that band and it was a lot more healthy but right when that band was getting started I had my daughter and it wasn't paying the bills 
Right. And so I started leaning more on my electronic skills and uh, actually worked in a junkyard for a while. <laughs> uh, and uh, the junkyard was a really cool place because it was where a lot of the studios in L.A. came to get their props. And uh, like they provided some of the props that made the Back to the Future car. Nice. And there was a, it was they'd get. Uh, scrap from Boeing and, you know, a lot of big uh, industry electronics companies in the, the, the 60s and 70s. It had been around for a long time. So I'd find all these really cool transformers and vintage parts, and I'd collect them. And that's when I really started building audio equipment. And that was kind of like the pivot point where I kind of slowly let music go and started getting more serious about my uh, engineering skills. And that ultimately led to my job at Capitol and uh, the rest is history. But yeah, it was a kind of a strange road to travel. But the whole time, again, having two skills to, you know, to work with and doing the work really helped with, with my life. Because if I was only a musician and I just needed to struggle with music. Who knows what would have happened with a family in tow? And, you know, it, it's a unique story. And, I, you know, it probably isn't going to happen that way with a lot of people. But I'm glad it all did. And I wouldn't do it differently today. Amazing. Dude, this has been, uh, this has been a good hang. I got one last question for you. Okay. Right now, what is your current big goal that you can share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards that goal? Well, uh, I guess my, my current big goal is to have a complex that overlooks the ocean where I have a mastering room, a tech lab where I can design stuff, and a hi-fi listening room with a bar. And uh, <laughs> just do whatever I want and, and swim in the ocean whenever I want. That's my big goal. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of steps to get there. And to be honest, I think I'm already taking those steps. Things just seem to be falling into place with this new cutting job that I'm getting that uh, I will surely announce in a bit. It's a really cool partnership with somebody, and I'm very excited about it. And it, it is a, a step towards that goal. But to be honest, man, I'm just I'm letting things happen as they happen. I'm kind of past the point of having to struggle too hard. It seems life is just kind of living me instead of me living life, if you get my meaning. Um, and it's exciting. I'm really excited about my life right now. And I'm glad I get to document it here on the Progressions podcast <laughs> with Travis Ferentz. <laughs> That's right. We've, we've, we've committed it all into uh, eventually MP3 form. Exactly. Um, Dude, this to be is uncovered by uh, future generations and space aliens. <laughs> it's going in a time capsule. <laughs> I'm going to bury it in my backyard. Yeah. Uh, dude, uh, let people know where they can uh, get in line for your compressors, where, how they can get in contact you for, for, for mastering, or where, where you at on the internet. Yeah, right now everything's kind of in flux, but just if, you know, go to magicdeatheye.com and my email's on there. Any questions, I'm cool at answering things pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, it's it's in flux and it's exciting. And um, I will keep people updated as it goes. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, man. This is this is good. But hopefully uh, we'll be hanging out soon. Uh, yeah, man. My pleasure. Let's, let's get some beers. Sounds good. 
So that's it for episode 29. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast player of choice. And if you're enjoying the show and feel inclined to leave us a review, it is greatly appreciated. Also, don't forget we have a room on the Complete Producer Network for Progressions listeners. We've got a growing community over there, so jump over to completeproducer.net and sign up. And that's a wrap. We'll see you next week.